Evidence has been accumulating for years that this nation's industrial food and agriculture system is environmentally and economically unsustainable. But what can we do about it? We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we're talking sustainability. First, we've got a story about the Grinnell College Garden, which has grown tremendously over the past two years. Then we'll talk with Heather Swan, poet, artist, and scholar of environmental literature at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who was on campus earlier this fall to talk about honeybees, the threats facing them, and efforts to maintain them around the world. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. The Grinnell College Garden began in 1999, established by a small group of students, faculty, and community members interested in promoting local foods. The local foods movement was picking up steam with Grinnell's first community-supported agriculture project, the expansion of the Grinnell Farmers Market, and the formation of the Grinnell Area Local Foods Alliance. Initially located at the Dunham Farm at Penrose Street and 16th Avenue, the garden covered about one-tenth of an acre, provided by the Dunhams free of charge. After its third year, to increase access and visibility, the garden was relocated to the college campus, to an 80-by-80-foot space on the west side of Park Street between 8th and 9th Avenues. The Center for Prairie Studies provided funding for two full-time student workers in the summer. But, during the school year, the garden relied solely on volunteers. As a result, it was difficult to maintain a productive garden throughout the growing season. In the late 2000s, some students began an effort to revitalize it. Still, it was an uphill battle, working with limited resources. Two years ago, though, as the college made plans to repurpose the space occupied by the garden, the Center for Prairie Studies requested and received permission and some funding to construct a new garden behind Food House at 1128 East Street. In the spring of 2017, a large group of students, staff, and faculty laid the plans for a new, more ambitious garden. John Andelson, as the director of the Center for Prairie Studies, has been at the helm of this resurgence. He says once they got permission from the college for the new site, he started exploring possibilities and reaching out to people. They received a donation of lumber from the parents of a student, and that really set everything in motion. That lumber was a key ingredient that made us decide to have raised beds. That made us decide to go with a drip irrigation system in the beds. We needed a way to fill the beds, and a friend of mine who's a local farmer donated the compost. With some additional help and donations of seeds, the new garden was on its way. The newest iteration of the garden solves a lot of the problems faced by the old one. In the past, dining services, because we raised so little, really wasn't interested in what we were producing, and so they didn't take it. But last summer, right away, when they saw the new scale and saw what we were capable of producing, they started saying yes. So um, we have been in the habit ever since last summer of contacting them, telling them what we have, asking if they want it, and they've almost always said yes to everything. Now, around 75% of the garden produce goes to the dining hall with another 10% to Mid-Iowa Community Action, and the remaining 15% to staff, volunteers, and for special events. With adequate funding, a paid garden consultant, 
more space, and the ability to hire student workers both during the summer and academic year, the garden has been able to thrive. In its first year, it produced around 1,000 pounds of produce, and this year they surpassed that number by another 100 pounds. There are around 50 varieties of plants in the garden, which has about 1,800 square feet of production space. Andelson says they adhere to mostly organic practices, but the garden is not certified organic. And that's an important distinction in the market, but since we're not selling our produce um, but donating it, it's a distinction that we can make, but we couldn't sell our produce as certified organic because you have to go through a lot of paperwork and there's an annual inspection and a fee, and we thought, well, there's really not need to do that, but we don't use any um, synthetic fertilizers or chemicals. We had a big problem with Japanese beetles this summer, and we used the manual method for getting rid of them, just plucking them off and popping them in a jar of soapy water. And that sounds like a job for student apprentices, if I've ever heard of one. It was so strange having, like, the power in your hands of just murdering such a large quantity of um, living things. But it was definitely necessary. They were just, like, attacking our basil crop especially. Um, And, yeah, I think it kind of brings you closer to the idea of if I want to really treat my plants right, I need to take a more hands-on approach with eliminating pests. That's Hannah Galloway. She was one of the student apprentices at the garden this past summer. Although students working in the garden come with vastly differing levels of gardening experience, they are eager to learn. Whether through brain or brawn, creativity or curiosity, the students play an instrumental role in the garden. They have a say in the decisions about what to plant and when to plant it. Even though there's forces acting on us, like the dining hall wanting us to plant copious amounts of spinach, at the end of the day, it's like still completely up to the workers there what will be planted. Um, And so, for example, I made a bunch of like okra starts, and there's just this massive bed of okra um, that's slowly being harvested. The summer before working in the garden, Hannah worked at Mustard Seed Farms in Ames, and she brought that experience with her to the college garden. At the beginning of the summer, I saw that all of our tomato plants were, like, horrifically tipping over. um, And using, like, some trellising skills I'd learned from mustard seed, I just, like, built trellises for them. In addition to the paid student apprentices during the summer and student workers during the school year, there are students from the college, high school, and broader Grinnell community who volunteer at the garden, taking time out of their busy schedules to help out on garden workdays. Dominic Townsend Carroll, a first-year, is one of those volunteers. He heard about the garden during new student orientation and has been volunteering ever since. I asked him why he dedicates his time to the garden. To start with, it's a really, really peaceful and just calming thing. It takes me away from from my studies. Um, Just some nice manual labor (laughs) breaks that up. Um, And I just, I love food. Occasionally get to take home some of the products from the garden and that's always fun. This fall, I caught up with some of the student workers and volunteers during a work day at the garden. And that can be direct seeded now. Is kale an okay thing to plant? Yeah. Yeah, it's really cold hardy. It can take overnight temps to the mid-20s or below. So you could um, just re-rake that bed and plant... On this day, in addition to tending the garden, they were planting something entirely different, a new sign. It proved to be more difficult than anything else they planted in the garden, 
as they had to navigate around routes and electrical cables. But the sign did eventually get planted, and then the students took me on a tour of the garden. All 23 raised beds, including a hugel bed, which is a raised bed technique made of logs, twigs, sod, and compost, used for centuries in Germany and Eastern Europe. There's also a hoop house, a compost pile, and a drip irrigation system. It's all pretty impressive, and any Grinnellian who remembers the old student garden would marvel at this one. Walking around, I stumbled upon some funky yellow vegetable that I had never seen before. It looked like a tiny yellow pimply pumpkin, but I wasn't sure what it was. John, what are these? Those are cucumbers. These are cucumbers? Yeah. You mm. can take one home. They're really quite good. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, take a couple. Okay. Here's, here's, and I know they don't look like cucumbers. No, they, I've never seen cucumbers that look like this. We have standardized, so standardized, our supply uh -huh. of vegetables. So everybody think, thinks that eggplants are this big and purple. Uh -huh. Well, only some are. Everybody thinks cucumbers are like that and green, but only some are. We have radishes that are white, not red. We have, what else? Carrots that are white, not orange. <laughs> You know, blowing my mind out here. We try to try to diversify. Yeah. Yeah. The garden has a lot of funky produce like this. If you're accustomed to shopping in grocery stores for produce, you might not recognize some of the plants, like the white carrots. It's getting a little better with apples, but about 30 years ago, if you went to the store, you could get golden delicious or red delicious. Yeah. And maybe one other type. At least today, we've got a bunch of different kinds. Same thing with potatoes. You know, you go to the store, you can choose russets or reds or, you know, the yellow ones. Um, but you go to Peru and you find literally 500 different kinds wow. of potatoes. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> Our photographer, Justin Hayworth, and I marveled at the size of the plump tomatoes. Wow. It looks more like a squash than a tomato. That is a, a one-slice BLT tomato. <laughs> it is. Jacob Friedman, a senior, worked in the garden this summer. In addition to being paid for his work, he also received a generous allotment of grape tomatoes from the garden. But his favorite part of the garden, from a purely ecological perspective, isn't the tomatoes, but rather the three sisters' bed. So, for at least 700 years, uh, Native Americans have been planting these three crops together, corn, squash, and beans, and they all kind of work in conjunction with one another to, you know, keep the soil healthy, uh, not overdo it from taking one nutrient, like for instance, like the, the corn uses a lot of nitrogen, um, but you're growing beans at the same time, which restores nitrogen to the soil. And then the squash has these giant leaves that protect the the soil from the sun and keep it cool and moist and also the vines are are thorny so pests can't get to it and it's this beautiful little Harmony. ecosystem almost um, and the and the corn the, the beans grow up the corn too so that's pretty neat last spring Jacob took John Andelson's anthropology class culture and agriculture taking that class and then working here really has done a lot to change my outlook and if not like my future path. Like I, 
I, I do want to continue to be involved in this kind of work for as long as I can, seriously. Like, it's really rewarding, and um, it feels valuable. Um, yeah. Apart from that, it's just really enjoyable to spend your time, your hands in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> Christina Collins, a second year, is another one of the student workers in the garden. Last year, she and Rachel Snodgrass, another second year, worked together to create a map of the garden. We realized, or everyone realized, that our map wasn't super detailed, so we wanted a new one, um, and we launched this process of getting the map done. And I need to have things really exact because of who I am, and also it's helpful. So we went and we measured, remeasured everything in the garden, like everything. And so at a certain point it was really cold, but we still had to measure, so I have a very vivid memory of it snowing and us with like this you know, one of those, like, scientific, super long tape measures, like, running. <laughs> Sarah Cannon, a senior, grew up in Chicago, where her family grew peas in a little plot in their alley. But her summer apprenticeship at the garden really introduced her to gardening in a meaningful way. She enjoys the practical experience of learning to garden as a valuable companion to classroom learning. Working in the garden has opened Sarah's eyes to elements of food justice that relate to her studies as a political science major. I think food sovereignty and like the power dynamics associated with who has access to what food and when is something that I'm definitely way more conscious of now than I was before working here. A common sentiment among those involved with the garden is the joy of seeing the garden's produce in the dining hall and knowing that they picked that tomato or planted that spinach. I like saw them out of the corner of my eye and I was like, oh my God, yes, I need to take these uh, cucumbers um, because they were the ones that I physically planted. Um, and I think they were a true lemon, like they're the round, strange looking ones. Yeah. Um, and so I was excited that the dining hall is basically down for serving things that look kind of funky to most people. Isabella Safera is another first year who has found her way over to the garden to volunteer this year. And she also enjoys seeing the fruits, or vegetables, of her labor. Yeah, it's especially interesting because you can see that map where it says um, in the dining hall all the food that they've gotten locally, and then sometimes you'll see Grinnell College Garden, and I was like, I helped pick that. In addition to providing local food for the dining hall, the garden also yields other benefits. Some professors have started to use the garden as a teaching resource. Vince Eckhart, professor of biology, is teaching a tutorial on the evolution of domestication. The class is reading a book by Jonathan Silvertown called Dinner with Darwin about the evolutionary history of food domestication. They made a trip out to the garden for class where Hannah Galloway guided them on a tour. I'll, I'll tell you, the students were particularly interested in um, one area where they've got actually non-food plants, where they've planted things that are sort of uh, supplemental food resources for animal pollinators like butterflies and bees. So I think my students asked more about that. If some of them, some of the students were interested in, in plants that they ate at home, like one fellow who's from Fairfield, Iowa, is accustomed to eating okra, and most people don't like okra, but he grew up and his father grew it in the garden and he, he made him think of his dad. But the one that I, w I wanted them to look at most closely was Jerusalem artichoke, for the reason that the, the chapter in this book, in Dinner with Darwin, talks, among other things, about the evolutionary ancestors of food plants. And Jerusalem artichoke is interesting because that's a plant that was domesticated from a plant that's wild around here. So you can find its wild ancestor growing in roadside ditches and other sort of wet areas um, in the Grinnell area. 
The connections for Eckhart's class to the garden may seem intuitive, but other professors outside of the sciences are also making use of the garden. Steve Andrews, professor of English, took his tutorial's involvement a step further by having them actually plant beans in the garden's hoop house. The tutorial is called Castles, Foundations, Freedom, Walden and the Liberal Arts. I asked the students what in the world beans had to do with Henry David Thoreau. In the book we're reading by Thoreau, you know, he has a chapter titled The Bean Field, and so it connects to what we're reading. Yeah, Thoreau talks a lot about, like, self-sufficiency and, like, working with your own hands and making your own life for yourself, kind of taking care of yourself. So making your own food is a big part of that, and, like, working with the earth to bring something to life. We can, like, relate with it. <coughs> like, but he, he played on, like, a whole bunch of things, but we just play on one. <laughs> Andrews is apparently very fond of the fact that a bean you're going to plant is called a pulse. Not a seed, but a pulse. So Thoreau's also very fond of it, so there's, there's a lot of different metaphorical trails we've gone down. We've gotten multiple emails that say, check your pulse. Check your pulse. <laughs> yeah. The students tell me that Henry David Thoreau prescribed to the ideology of Pythagoras. Yes, the triangle guy. But he also had other ideas one of which was a belief that beans came from the same source as humans. So, eating beans was akin to eating human flesh, and Thoreau abstained. Which really begs the question of why he planted all those beans in the first place. Just like Thoreau, these students refrained from eating their beans. Not because they are Pythagoreans, but because they will keep them as seeds for Andrew's next tutorial. In addition to a resource for classes, the garden is also just a nice place to relax or study, as many students have told me. Sprinkled throughout the garden are little quotes about the joys of gardening and the importance of sustainable food. One of them reads, It's difficult to think anything but pleasant thoughts while eating a homegrown tomato. Indeed, just being near the garden can be rejuvenating. By any metric, the garden has been successful these past two years. But that success has only come as the result of some incredible collaboration. The garden has received donations of time, expertise, and resources far beyond the college campus, extending into Grinnell's local agricultural community and throughout the state of Iowa. It's impossible to thank everyone, but some notable assistance came in from Nick Coster from the Conard Environmental Research Area, who led the construction of the raised beds and helped install the drip irrigation system. Local farmer Howard McDonough, who donated rich, beautiful compost to fill the beds. Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, who donated seed, and the college's facilities management, who donated a hoop house frame and helped transport the storage shed and compost bins from the previous location. One of the most important collaborators, though, is Ann Brow, who now serves as the paid consultant for the garden. But her involvement with the garden goes all the way back to its beginning, in 1999. At the time, she was starting Grinnell's first CSA, so she was very involved in the local agriculture scene and students sought her out because of that and her friendship with John Andelson. She grew up on a small 80-acre farm in Chelsea, Iowa, and studied agricultural education at Iowa State. She now runs Compass Plant CSA, a four-acre farm located 10 miles east of Grinnell with her husband, Lyle Dunham. She brings much-needed expertise to the garden. I have helped them set up a working plan for how the beds go, we decided to go with raised beds because of the condition of the soil at the site. Um, it also makes it a little easier to maintain aesthetically 
pleasing cleanliness and um, you know then you don't have the neighbors yelling at you because you got weeds everywhere I also will walk through the garden and go to each bed and tell them this is what needs done 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 and I'll give them a list of 30 things and they're kind of like oh my god what does this woman want us to do (laughs) a little overwhelming at times I'm sure but the students appreciate her guidance and really benefit from her teaching. And I try and put it in uh, their experiential level of knowledge. You know, science-based, obviously, because it all is science, but there is an art and a finesse to it that they don't have yet, and that's where this space allows them to develop that. This is the type of experiential, embodied learning that the students have told me about and that John really espouses in his teaching. Learning the value of local food requires more than just a theoretical understanding. It's hard to grasp by reading it in a textbook. You need to work with the soil and taste the food. That kind of learning is one of the motivating factors behind Anne's involvement in the garden. She also just really cares about local food. People need to eat real food. That's the basic premises. You need to eat real food. You need to know where your food comes from, and you should be involved in it somehow, whether you participate as a producer, as a backyard grower, as a pot of basil on your counter, or a member in a CSA, or you go to local farmer's markets. You should know where your food comes from. I asked Anne how the garden manages to elicit support from people throughout the community. Uh, Well, Greenell College is a unique spot in a unique place, for one thing. Um, It is also the enthusiasm of the students that they bring to to the project, and that there is a good core of people in the Grinnell community that want local foods to succeed. So you bring all of those together, and the synergy is there for this to develop as it has. Another critical part of the garden success is the irrigation system, which gives Anne just a touch of garden envy. If you've lived in Iowa any length of time, you can look back over just the last week, we have gone from 90s to 30s to 40s to 60s and had rain all the way along. Prior to that, we had dry conditions all the way along for a good chunk of the summer. If you can't control your water input to the plants, you don't get consistent growth. And because this is a demonstration, experiential, educational location, that consistency helps a lot. The diversity of the garden also makes it more resilient. Diversity is going to be the salvation of any garden because one thing may fail, but another thing may survive the conditions at the time. Adding color adds nutrition to your diet. Adding a variety of different plants also allows you to eat the whole season and provide maybe some storage capabilities in what you plant if you have the ability to store food. In addition to bountiful harvests of delicious food, the garden also produces students who care about agriculture. More than a few of the current garden workers and volunteers express plans to keep local food a priority in their lives. But the garden has been producing green-thumb Grinnellians for years. Jordan Scheibel is one of those Grinnellians. Jordan is a 2010 graduate and an alum of the garden. 
and he's putting that experience to use now as the owner of Middleway Farms, an organic farm just north of Grinnell. Jordan's interest in agriculture blossomed at Grinnell, and he eventually decided to stick around after graduation, working at Grinnell Heritage Farm before making the leap into starting his own farm. There's a quote I really like, uh, which is, uh, there's no more intimate way to uh, relate to your environment than to eat from it. And I think part of the ways that people feel alienated from ecology and the the place around them is because we no longer look to the area around us to actually feed us. It's just sort of this backdrop, and then we think food comes from somewhere else. We don't think of the land around us as providing for us. And like pretty much for all of human history up until, you know, mid-century, people had this real sense of connection uh, to land that it was something that you depended on. And I think we don't even, we don't think of depending on anything except maybe, you know, electricity and, you know, things like that. So that's one aspect I think that local food is that it, it reintegrates us back into our environment. Um, I think, I mean, like for me, local food, when I cooked with it, like it's a, it's a different product, like it tastes entirely different to me and it makes, I get so much more pleasure out of eating locally produced food than I do out of eating mass produced food of even or even organic mass produced food, which I buy. Um, yeah, local food reconnects us to our environment and it reconnects us to food as an actual like life sustaining activity rather than something that we just kind of like have to get through so we can get to more interesting stuff. Right. You know, um, I think of food as being really central to my life rather than kind of, oh, well, I got to like, you know, cook dinner quick so I can go do the, the stuff that I really want right. to do. Like for me, like actually like food is the, is an organizing act. Like it's, it's the way that I, um, give love back to people. Um, it's the way that like I take care of myself, take care of the people around me. Yeah. In addition to the thousand pounds of produce, the garden yields, the hope for the future is that it can produce more graduates like Jordan who become connected to the soil and food. The College Garden likely won't make a significant impact on the local agricultural system here in Grinnell, but everyone who interacts with the garden gains an appreciation for the value of local food, and ideally incorporates that into their everyday lives. Well, it's just so important, Ben, that we find different ways to farm and different ways to feed people because there's so many problems associated with our current agriculture system, environmental problems and social problems. Not to mention economic non-sustainability because many years the only way farmers make money is through government supports, one kind or another. The price of corn is way down, the price of soybeans is not good, and now the trade war with China, not clear how that's going to impact it. Uh, And then also the way people eat. We don't eat well as a nation. Too much fat, too much sugar, too much salt. So we, we need to reinvent the backyard garden, the deck garden, uh, the community garden, as well as larger establishments like Middleway Farm or even more so Grinnell Heritage Farm. Indeed. We as a community and society more broadly are still a long way from sustainable agriculture as the norm. Even though the College Garden is a small venture, it is a wonderful example of putting sustainability into action. To see photos of the garden and look at their harvest data for the past two years, check out the story online at grinnell.edu podcast. Like sharks, bees are often misunderstood creatures. We don't have as many scary movies about bees, sure, 
but people are often scared of them, or at best tolerate them as a necessary nuisance. Bees, though, play a critical role in our food production. With bee populations on the decline worldwide, it is essential that we understand these amazing creatures and the vital function they serve in our world. Heather Swan, a poet, lecturer, and beekeeper herself, traveled around the world researching these threats and the ways that people are responding. She recently visited Grinnell to talk about her concerns, but also about the hope and resilience she found. I asked her how she became so enthralled with bees in the first place. When I was really little, I lived in an area that was a, they had a prairie outside my door, and my parents were working in their studios. And um, my little sister was too young to hang out with me, so I mostly hung out with my dog in these prairie and woods spaces. And I became really aware of all of the non-human beings that were in those environments in a way that was very um, open because I hadn't been sort of trained that humans were above everything else. I mean, it just didn't occur to me that they weren't as valuable as we were. Um, And so I've been interested in insects um, since I was really small. Um, And then um, when I was about eight years old, my dad took me to a, um, a beekeeper's farm and we attended a honey harvest and the honey harvest um entailed opening up the honeycomb and um you know getting the honey out of those little wax chambers and i had never seen anything like that before but we were in this this room and there were all of these bees flying around and there were the the smell of the honey and the wax was just extraordinary and so beautiful and overwhelming um intoxicating really, but also to watch a human being interact with these insects in a way that was so, uh, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't wearing a lot of gear or anything like that. And I thought that's incredible, you know, that he can be with these bees. And um, so I thought in the back of my mind, I thought that's the coolest job ever to <laughs> to be able to work with bees. And so then um, it was much later that I actually got, um, you know, involved in apprenticing um, people. But that was really when I was, I don't know, bitten, right, or whatever. <laughs> with the, Yeah, stung. Stung with the, <laughs> the magic of, of honeybees was when I was probably eight. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that smell. It is like a – my dad usually does it in the garage when he, when he, when he steals the, the honey from the bees. He does it in the garage, and it's just like the heat and like, yeah. oh, it's – wow. <laughs> it is. It's really amazing. The, the wax and, – and also when you open – you can get that – just going and standing near a hive, the smell of the wax, the honey, and then the the propolis also is just that smell. It's one of the best smells in the world. Anyone that's listening should get get to a beehive so that they can experience <laughs> that in some way because it's just like none other. Yeah. Um, so there's nearly 20,000 species of bees mm-hmm. based on my Google research. How did the Western or European honeybee become so prevalent and important as a pollinator of crops worldwide? My research has led me to understand this story in one particular way. But, um, you know, we've been interested in the honeybee, um, even in the, you know, there are cave paintings in South Africa and in Spain that show um, images of people taking honey from the bees so we have been interested in taking the honey from them for a long time. Um, and then, so there's some evidence that the Egyptians used um, bees, they moved them up and down um, the Nile to to do sort of the, that kind of pollination. The 
Apis mellifera was not in the United States until um, the European colonization. So they have been here for a long time, but they they were not here initially. And so a really interesting problem, I think, that for people thinking about conservation and the use of the honeybee as an industrial tool is the fact that they, um, they're not, uh, you know... Native species. They're not native species. And, I mean, it's really interesting to think about if we really look at which species are really original... I mean, it would be really hard to parse out, you know, which, you know, species of fish we shouldn't eat and all of those things. Um, but I, from from my thinking, I think uh, we have to look at where we are right now, and that is that we're in a situation where we are using the uh, honeybee as an indes- industrial tool. There's a lot of really great research being done on how really effective native pollinators are and that they could actually um, if we increased the habitat for those bees, we could actually um, lean on the honeybee less, um, which might be really terrific. What are all those other bees doing? They need to get off their uh, get off their behinds and, and pollinate. What are they up to? It's not. I don't think it's that they are not pollinating. The biggest thing with the native bees is that they've been their habitat has been destroyed, right? So the bumblebee is a really fantastic pollinator for certain kinds of plants and. Um, uh, the minor bee is really good for um, pollinating other kinds of plants. And I think, you know, each, a lot of times what we think is that, um, you know, each pollinator could pollinate everything, but that's not the case. That, the, that in fact, the flower shapes, I mean, the bees and the pollinators evolved, um, you know, so slowly over time. So that there's there are really specific special relationships between these different um you know, these different beings. And um, so if you eliminate one, you know, group of plants, then you um, are going to eliminate the food for a, a big group of insects and other kinds of pollinators. I mean, there, you know, there are other ways of pollinate besides just insect pollination. Um, but I think that the biggest thing is that we, by planting something like, um, I visited the restored prairie called... Um, Sarah this morning? Yeah, Conard Environmental Research Area. Yes, um, and that's an amazing space because those native plants that are, um, that native prairie will support um, a whole range of, of insects and pollinators. And so it's great for anyone that has honeybees because the honeybees will have more forage, but it's also really great for all of those other insects. Can you paint a picture for us of the, the major threats facing the honeybee right now? So the biggest issue, I think, um, is that there's not enough forage for, for a lot of um, insects. And so and the honeybee specifically has been used as, as I said, a tool in agriculture. And so if you take a honeybee to, pop, to pollinate a, a crop um, that has one thing growing only, like a monocrop situation, Take almonds, for instance. Just, you know, sort of the the thing people say about the almond grove is that it's about the size of Rhode Island, and that's one plant that's growing there. And there's been some movement lately to at least start to um, plant crops of flowers along the edges of those those giant fields. But um, if you can imagine, um, you know, going in and they they you know the bees will will pollinate those crops. Um, and then they have nothing else to eat. And so what they do is they feed them with high fructose corn syrup to, to supplement their diets. And, you know, it's just, if you know those insects, which 
so one of the things I think about honeybees, to go back to your original question, is that why why honeybees and, and humans? But I think it's because the honeybee is such an easy, um, not easy, but um, they they have such an amazing um, community and, and, and humans have been interested in them for so long, um, partly because of their organization and because it's, because they have uh, the, the sort of that kind of a community uh, and they have something that we want, honey. Um, we have studied them, you know, really extensively. And um, so, you know, partly I think, it, you know, our interest in, in them comes from the fact that they they have a lot to teach us. And they, in, in their, left to their own devices, like I was just in Europe um, and where the, the honeybee is, you know, uh, native. And the thing about the honeybee is that they not only live beautifully in community, but they also are, they're constantly giving in their relationship to the land. So they're taking nectar, but they're pollinating those flowers. And so there's this incredible symbiotic relationship that's so harmonious and beautiful. And I feel like taking those insects and putting them into these models of production and, you know, feeding them something unnatural like, um, you know, high fructose corn syrup is just... It's sort of heartbreaking. Well, for me, it's really heartbreaking. Um, and I think that we could definitely live with them in a better way, for sure. <laughs> is there anything more vital or whose absence could be more dangerous than, than the honeybee? Oh, boy, that's a really tough question. Um, plankton, maybe? Jeez. Um, uh, I, that's a tough question because it's making me think about a hierarchy and I don't like uh, to think of that at all. Like mm-hmm. I feel like I would much rather try to create safe ecosystems so that we're not um, losing anybody, you know? Um, but that's an interesting thing. There is, a, I mean, if, there are a lot of people that would say that if you lose the honeybee, um, you know, our agricultural systems will fail because we have become so dependent on them. And that's true. Like it's, it will have a huge effect on like if we were to actually lose the honeybee and did not get um you know one of the solutions which i talk about in my book in fact is is um you know uh taking making a little um flying machine like a little tiny uh-huh. um yeah, robot bee and pollinating with those and i think um what i heard recently was that walmart bought a patent for one of the insect pollinate uh, these robo bees um and I thought about just, in fact, there was an article that I read that was just like, what a joke that is to imagine that you could, that that would be, that would make any financial sense. But the fact that they bought that made me think, wow, they really are concerned because they if think Walmart like, is. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm right about that. I'm pretty sure I can look it up, but I'm, if we think that that is a possible future solution, I think that's, that's sort of terrifying to me. Yeah, Wouldn't it be? Awesome. Well, and it was, I, I was imagining how much money that you would spend to make f- these sort of communities of, of machines, which would eventually fail, right? And birds would eat them and choke and so on. And there would be all kinds of problems. <laughs> Why not just make a better environment for the things that are doing it for free that are, you know, so. Um, but yeah, so one of the interesting things is that if we did, you know, if we do sort of stick with the model that we do have now, um, and we are, you know, continuing to use the honeybee as the ma- major pollinator. Um, one of the things is that they just need more food to eat. You know, we just need to to um, create more biodiversity. And, um, 
you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot um, with people is all the amazing strategies that we have and uh, that we have available to us right now that are happening. These great, you know, there are urban farms popping up everywhere and, and uh, I Amsterdam just did this really wonderful thing where they took the sides of their highways and the sides of their railroad tracks and they just planted native flowers all along the edges of these and they've seen an uh, like an amazing increase in the city of of um of bees and native bees and they've stopped using pesticides within the city and the the bee death has gone down. I mean it's just kind of like these possibilities are here and we can do them. So it's just about deciding to you know to make these things happen. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think there is there's hope. Yeah, it's what, hard to see it sometimes, but I uh-huh. believe there is. Um, so on the opposite end of hope, uh, what would a dystopian future without bees look like? Well, there would be no fruit. Uh, there would be, you know, I mean, one of the things to think about is just like, you know, the stuff that we we consume all the time is you know fruit, coffee, chocolate. Um, and, you know, almonds, nuts, many kinds of nuts. Um, so many of those things are pollinated by insects. If, if, you know, if we didn't have that population of pollinators, it would be pretty boring to eat, right? I mean, um, I mean, we can do a lot of creative things, but <laughs> I think to, I would still like to be able to have a, a you know, a peach or a pear, you yeah. know? Um, I'm also. I also love chocolate and coffee. I will admit, and so <laughs> it would be sad to lose those things too. But yeah, I think that it would be fairly bleak without those insects. The other thing is that there, you know, I mean, to, this is maybe a dark thing to mention, but you know, there was a study out of Germany last year that uh, measured insect populations, flying insect populations, over the past uh, 25 years, and the the insect population has decreased by 75 percent, and that's. A lot. And you think about the problem with eliminating insects is that they're the foundation for everything else. You know, birds eat insects, and um, many small mammals are connected to insects. And they're insects that are that were not even measured, not the flying insects, but the insects that are, you know, in the soil or the, the insects that are responsible for, de- you know, decomposition, right, is, is partly... In- uh, dependent upon insect populations, and and so we don't think about insects as being valuable, but they are so crucial to having a healthy ecosystem. So um, I feel like the honeybee, in a way, is like my mother calls it the gateway bug because it, um, if you become interested in the honeybee, and you recognize the the beauty of that insect, then it sort of opens your eyes to all of the other beautiful creatures that are, you know, that are right here living with us, but we just take for granted so much. Um, but yeah, certainly the the honeybee is special too in that it, this is a, a different from the pollination part of, you know, completely. It has to do so much with my own relationship with bees, which, um, you know, some beekeepers who are interested in beekeeping for money don't have the opportunity to sort of um, really just watch these insects doing their their work which I mean I just picked up two insects these two little bees that were outside of my hive they were wet it had rained and they were struggling in the grass and I picked them up and I put them in my hand and they walked towards each other even though one of them had a, a sh- like a wing that was um damaged and the other they were both they couldn't fly they were both you know damp 
But they both went directly to each other and began grooming each other and taking care of each other. And it was the most beautiful thing. I thought, you know, these insects have, I mean, and I, it's hard because it's so, you know, it's anthropomorphizing to say that they exhibit love. But I, I, there's no other way for me to really describe the relationship that they have with each other in the, in the colony. It's such a selfless, beautiful way that they just care, you know, for each other and care for the plants. And, and you know, so I just, it's a, that's part of the reason that I focus on the honeybee and why humans can um, become so, you know, sort of enamored by them. And we, we, there are so many societies that thought of them as sacred. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and there's something really special about them. But, but just on a, you know, on an ecosystem level to recognize that the, you know, these insects are so, you know, if you start looking at the honeybee home and think that it's just the hive, it's certainly not. They're connected to, you know, what's growing outside within a five mile radius, you know, so it's all the plants, they're, they're going to the trees to get sap for the, for, for making propolis in their hive. And um, they're connected to, of course, the water systems because they're, you know, they drink the water and the, the water is feeding these little plants. And so it's, you see that interconnectedness so clearly. And it, for me, I would say that that experience has made me want so much to go forth with this message that we really need to pay attention to this incredible system that we have, this, 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 this sort of miraculous web of interacting lives that we, we need to respect, you know, that we need, we're just one part of those systems, you know, and, and we don't, we often think of ourselves as above them or separate from them, but we're part of them and we're doing a lot of damage right now, but we can choose to live differently, you know, we can live more like a bee. That would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. So in your book, you not only sought out to to pinpoint the threats to honeybees, but also to explore what people are doing about it. Uh, and you talk to a whole host of people in, in different fields, different countries, talk to beekeepers, farmers, artists, entomologists, ecologists, and other advocates, people from vastly different fields all working to solve this problem. Mm. Do you think that's kind of indicative of how we must tackle these global ecological problems, like getting everybody to contribute their, you know, their own skills in their own way from various angles? Absolutely. I think that this, what I imagine is that this, this book that I created is, is just one scenario. It's, it's a, it could be, you know, possibly a model for the way that we approach lots of different problems. The, the thing is that, you know, I think one of the things that I wanted when I started this journey, you know, I, I was keeping bees and I, it was when I was just beginning really to get serious about it. And I realized they were suddenly in decline and they were dying left and right. And I thought, oh, my gosh, well, I want to find the bad guy, you know. And, and I realized there wasn't one problem. It was it was all kinds of problems. It was, you know, how many pesticides we were putting on lawns. And it was, you know, um, habitat reduction. And it was, you know, mono culture and it was viruses and there were so many problems and I thought oh I see it's a really complicated problem so therefore we have to have really complicated answers we always want to find just one you know simple solution to something but in fact it has to be more holistic I think um and I and yes I think you know the interesting thing is that you know a lot of the scientists that I know I mean we have this idea about these different disciplines being being so separate but in fact like when these when these disciplines begin to talk to each other, um, you know, I could do, if I'm a scientist, I can do a great experiment and I can come up with this, you know, body of, of 
information. But if we don't change the cultural belief around uh, around whatever scenario we're talking about, we we, can't, we won't see change. And so just putting the science out there doesn't change things. And so there's really, I think it has to be really um, a concerted effort um, from all of these disciplines. And sometimes, I mean, I'm not suggesting that everybody has to be at the table at all times, but to recognize that that we're not at odds with each other, that in fact, you know, there, there are all of these ways in which um, we can be, you know, an artist is going to do a really different kind of work than a scientist, but their goals may be very similar, right? And, um, you know, I, and I feel in my experience of going and talking to people and meeting people who are on the ground doing this work, there's so much wonderful work going on. There's so many people who are passionate, and I just feel really hopeful for the future, which is surprising to people usually because the narrative that we see in the media is so dark. It's such an apocalyptic uh, story. And I think that it's important that that story is out there because it motivates people, but it's not the whole story. There are lots and lots of ways in which change is happening already. Um, and it's just in all of these pockets that don't necessarily get, you know. They don't talk to each other always. They don't always talk to each other. That's right. And and, and maybe they don't need to, but it's really great for me to, to, to share those stories. I mean, the you know, the space where I was this morning is a, an, an amazing example of change. That's preserving these environments and, in fact, making them better. And, there's, you know, that's that's happening. That's That exists right here, you know. So, I mean, if anyone's feeling down and they're in the, the area, they should go over there. Go and, over to Sierra. <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah, a... Be rejuvenated. Yeah, hopeful. it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, you contribute in various ways through your writing as well as art. And in your book, you end each chapter with an illustration. How do you see the role of your artwork in this effort? So I think of myself, so it's interesting because my background is, so I grew up with a painter and a potter. So I was in clay studios and paint studios my whole life. Um, And then I was in, um, and we lived in art communities too. Uh, So uh, I would, as a little girl, when, after I lived in that prairie, the next place I lived was in Colorado in in a, in an art uh, center. And it was all of these buildings that had been little um, cabins that had been turned into studios. And so I would run from studio to studio and I'd just like, you know, chat with others. It was pretty great. Um, really fun, actually. But um, but so the thing is that I, I've always made uh, visual art, but then I, be- I really was interested in language um, as another art form. And so I studied poetry. And, um, and when I was doing environmental studies, I realized that, uh, so my PhD is in um, literature, literary and environmental studies and, and so what I was thinking about a lot was how we represent these problems in language and, and pulling from all of the sort of visual art training and the poetry training that I had. Um, that's how I came up with this this idea of this book. So after every chapter, there's a gallery, and I feel like the gallery sections of the book shouldn't be seen as anything less. Like I, they're not, I don't think that they're, um, they're not just like, decoration in the book, that there are actually other ways of making an argument. And sometimes those um, those arguments are affecting in a really different way than a statistic might be. And so by braiding storytelling and science and art, I was hoping to, to make this um, piece something that would hit people in more than just one way, that 
they would be um, maybe moved intellectually and emotionally um, at the end of the day. And I guess I'd have to talk to the people that read the book to see if that actually worked. <laughs> well, it's, it's working for me. Um, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it's it's definitely far too easy to think that you know the the tiny animals don't matter or that they're dispensable because there seems to be so many of them. Um, but thank you, Heather, for for sticking up for the little ones and making sure to uh, that we understand their importance. Uh, you're the bee's knees. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an honor to be here. Heather Swan is a beekeeper, poet, and lecturer at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Her book. Where Honeybees Thrive is a beautifully illustrated mosaic of visual imagery, stories, and science, which explores efforts to ensure a sustainable future for honeybees and ourselves. You can find a link to that, as well as her other work, on our website, grinnell.edu podcast. You hear that music? It's all right, but you know what I'd rather hear? Grinnell music. That's right. I want to include music from Grinnellians on the podcast. Whether you make music on GarageBand or play in an actual GarageBand, I don't care. I want to hear your original music, preferably clean, although I'll listen to it regardless, so don't be bashful. If you have music you'd like to be featured on the podcast or know someone who might, let me know. Email me at podcast at grinnell.edu. It takes a lot of music to make me sound interesting, so please send some songs my way. Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow! That's Shakespeare's King Lear, performed by me. And that is the wind here in Grinnell. It has indeed been raging and blowing and cracking its cheeks, whatever that means. Many a Grinnellian has battled through the white winter winds on their way to class, and cold winters are nothing new here. This winter, though, is getting a bit extreme. So extreme that the college had to cancel classes on Wednesday for the first time in recent memory. I was too busy trying to stay warm, so I didn't have time to dig into the history of snow days at the college, but I thought I would turn it over to our alumni to tell me their memories of snowstorms in Grinnell. You can share your story with me in writing or preferably by sending me an audio clip of yourself telling the memory. There are tons of voice recording apps for phones. Just choose one and give it a spin. Email me what you've got, and I'll include a few stories on the next show. If you're in the midst of this polar vortex, stay inside, stay warm, and listen to some podcasts. And if you're somewhere warm, well, listen to some podcasts anyway. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're talking with Grinnell Emeritus Professor of Economics, Jack Moody, about the impact of tariffs on the economy here in Iowa and beyond. We'll also expand on our conversation with Jordan Scheibel, who we heard from in today's episode. He graduated from Grinnell in 2010 and now runs Middleway Farm just outside of Grinnell. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and Audioblocks. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu, find us on Twitter with hashtag allthingsgrinnell, or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.